Hello, I'm Brandon Peterson, creator and narrator of Storytime. I hope you're enjoying the story. Before today's episode, I wanted to say thank you for listening and ask that you subscribe, share, and rate our podcast so that others can find us. If you're enjoying the podcast, I ask that you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash storytime by Brandon Peterson. Your support helps us to focus more time on telling these great stories and gets more episodes to you sooner. Again, thank you. And now, back to your story. Chapter 14 Mina Harker's Journal 23rd September Jonathan is better after a bad night. I'm so glad that he has had plenty of work to do, but that keeps his mind off the terrible things, and... Oh, I am rejoiced that he is not now weighed down with the responsibility of his new position. I knew he would be true to himself, and now how proud I am to see my Jonathan rising to the height of his advancement, and keeping pace in all his ways with his duties that come upon him. He will be away all day till late, for he said he could not lunch at home. My household work is done, so I shall take his foreign journal and lock myself up in my room and read it. 24th September I hadn't the heart to write last night. That terrible record of Jonathan's upset me so. Poor dear. How he must have suffered. Whether it be true or only imagination, I wonder if there is any truth in it at all. Did he get his brain fever and then write all those terrible things? Or had he some cause for it all? I suppose I shall never know, for I dare not open the subject to him. And yet that man we saw yesterday, he seemed quite certain of him. Poor fellow. I suppose it was the funeral that upset him and set his mind back on some train of thought. He believes it all himself. I remember how on our wedding day he said, Unless some solemn duty come upon me to go back to the bitter hours, asleep or awake, mad or sane. There seems to be, through it all, some thread of continuity. That fearful Count has come to London. If it should be he came to London with his teeming millions, there may be our solemn duty. If it come, we must not shrink from it. I shall be prepared. I shall get my typewriter this very hour and begin transcribing. Then we shall be ready for other eyes, if required. And if it be wanted, then, perhaps if I am ready, poor Jonathan may not be upset for I can speak for him and never let him be troubled or worried with it at all. If ever Jonathan quite gets over the nervousness, he may want to tell me of it all, and I can ask him questions and find out things, and see how I may comfort him. Letter Van Helsing to Mrs. Mina Harker 24th September Confidence Dear Madam, I pray to beg pardon in my writing in that I am so far friend as that I sent to you such news of Miss Lucy Westenhard's death. By the kindness of Lord Godalming, I am empowered to read her letters and papers, for I am deeply concerned about certain matters vitally important. In them I find some letters from you which show how great friends you were and how you love her. Oh, Madame Mina, by that love I implore you, help me. It is for others good that I ask to redress great wrong and that lift much the terrible troubles 
that may be more great than you can know. May it be that I see you to contrast me. I am friend of Dr. John Seward and of Lord Godalming. That was Arthur to Miss Lucy. I must keep it private for the present from all. I should come to Exeter to see you at once if you tell me I am privileged to come and where and when. I implore your pardon, madam. I have read your letters to Paul Lucy and know how good you are and how your husband suffer. So I pray you, if it may be, enlighten him not, lest it may harm. Again, your pardon. Forgive me. Van Helsing. Telegram. Mrs. Mina Harker to Van Helsing. 25th September. Come today by quarter past ten train if you can catch it. Can see you at any time you call. Wilhelmina Harker. Mina Harker's journal. 25th September. I cannot help feeling terribly excited as the time draws near for the visit of Dr. Van Helsing, but somehow I expect that it will throw some light upon Jonathan's sad experience. And as he attended poor Lucy in her last illness, he can tell me all about her. That is the reason for his coming. It is concerning Lucy and her sleepwalking, and not about Jonathan. And then I shall never know the real truth now. How silly I am. That awful journal gets hold of my imagination and tinges everything with something of its own color. Of course it is about Lucy. That habit comes back to the poor dear, and that awful night on the cliff must have made her ill. I had almost forgotten in my own affairs how ill she was afterwards. She must have told him of her sleepwalking adventure on the cliff, and that I knew all about it. And now he wants me to tell him what she knows, so that I may understand. I hope I did right in not saying anything to Mrs. Westenra. I should never forgive myself if any act of mine, were it even a negative one, brought harm on poor dear Lucy. I hope too Dr. Van Helsing will not blame me. I have had so much trouble and anxiety of late that I feel I cannot bear more just at present. I suppose a cry does us all good at times, clears the air as rain does. Perhaps it was reading the journal yesterday that upset me. And then Jonathan went away this morning to stay away from me a whole day and night, the first time we've been parted since our marriage. I do hope the dear fellow will take care of himself, and that nothing will occur to him to upset him. It is two o'clock and the doctor will be here soon now. I shall say nothing of Jonathan's journal unless he asks me. I am so glad I have typewritten out my own journal, so that in case he asks about Lucy, I can give it to him. It will save much questioning. later. He has come and gone. Oh, what a strange meeting, and how it all makes my head whirl round. I feel like one in a dream. Can it be all possible, or even a part of it? If I had not read Jonathan's journal first, I should never have accepted even a possibility. Poor, poor dear Jonathan, how I must have suffered. Please the good God, all this may not upset him again. I shall try to save him from it. It may be even a consolation and a help to him, terrible though it be and awful in its consequences, to know for certain that his eyes and ears and brain did not deceive him, and that it is all true. It may be that it is the doubt which haunts him, that when the doubt is removed, no matter which waking or dreaming may prove the truth, he will be more satisfied and better able to bear the shock.
Dr. Van Helsing must be a good man as well as a clever one if he is Arthur's friend and Dr. Seward's, and if they brought him all the way from Holland to look after Lucy, I feel from having seen him that he is good and kind and of a noble nature. When he comes tomorrow, I shall ask him about Jonathan, and then, please God, all this sorrow and anxiety may lead to a good end. I used to think I would like to practice interviewing. Jonathan's friend on the Exeter News told him that memory was everything in such work, that you must be able to put down exactly almost every word spoken, even if you had to refine some of it afterwards. Here was a rare interview. I shall try to record it verbatim. It was half past two o'clock when the knock came. I took my courage, I'd do mine, and waited. In a few minutes, Mary opened the door and announced, Dr. Van Helsing. I rose and bowed. He came towards me, a man of medium weight, strongly built, with his shoulders set back over a broad, deep chest and a neck well balanced on the trunk of his head, is on the neck. The poise of the head strikes one at the once as indicative of thought and power. The head is noble, well-sized, broad, and large behind the ears. The face, clean-shaven, shows a hard, square chin, a large, resolute, mobile mouth, a good-sized nose, rather straight but with quick, sensitive nostrils that seem to broaden as the big, bushy brows come down and the mouth tightens. The forehead is broad and fine, rising at first almost straight, then sloping back above two bumps or ridges wide apart. Such a forehead that the reddish hair cannot quite possibly tumble over it all, but falls naturally back to the sides. Big dark blue eyes are set widely apart and are quick and tender or stern with the man's moods. He said to me, Mrs. Harker, is it not? I bowed assent. That was Miss Mina Murray? Again I assented. It is Mina Murray that I came to see, that was friend of that poor dear child Lucy Westenra. Madam Mina, it is on account of the dead I come. Sir, I said, you could have no better claim on me than that you were a friend and helper of Lucy Westenra. And I held out my hand. He took it and said tenderly, Oh, Madam Mina, I knew that the friend of that poor lily girl must be good, but I had yet to learn. He finished his speech with a courtly bow. I asked him what it was that he wanted to see me about, so he at once began. I have read your letters, Miss Lucy. Forgive me, but I had to begin to inquire somewhere, and there was none to ask. I know that you were with her at Whitby. She sometimes kept a diary. You need not look surprised, Madame Mina. It was begun after you had left, and was an imitation of you. And in that diary she traces by inference certain things to a sleepwalking in which she puts down that you saved her. In great perplexity, then I come to you and ask you out of your so much kindness to tell me of it all that you can remember. I can tell you, I think, Dr. Van Helsing, all about it. Ah! Then you have good memory for facts, for details. It is not always so with young ladies. No, Doctor, but I wrote it all down at the time. I can show it to you if you like. Oh, Madam Mina, I will be grateful. You will do me much favor. I could not resist the temptation of mystifying him a bit. I suppose it is some of the taste of the original apple that remains still in our mouths. So I handed him the shorthand diary. 
He took it with a grateful bow and said, May I read it? If you wish. I answered as demurely as I could. He opened it, and for an instant his face fell. Then he stood up and bowed. Oh, you are so clever a woman, he said. I know that the long Mr. Jonathan Harker was a man of such thankfulness, but see, his wife have all the good things. And will you not so much honor me and so help me as to read it for me? Alas, I know not the shorthand. By this time, my little joke was over, and I was almost ashamed, so I took the typewritten copy from my work basket and handed it to him. Forgive me, I said. I could not help it. But I had been thinking that it was of dear Lucy that you wished to ask, and so that you might not have time to wait, not on my account, but because I know your time must be precious. I have written it out on a typewriter for you. He took it and his eyes glistened. You are so good, he said. May I read it now? I may want to ask you some things uh, when I have read. By all means, I said. Read it over whilst I order lunch, and then you can ask me questions whilst we eat. He bowed and settled himself in a chair, and his back to the light, and became absorbed in the papers whilst I went to see after lunch, chiefly in order that he might not be disturbed. When I came back, I found him walking hurriedly up and down the room, his face all ablaze with excitement. He rushed up to me and took me by both hands. Oh, Madam Mina, he said, how can I say what I owe you? This paper is a sunshine. It opens to the gate to me. I am dazed. I am dazzled with so much light, and yet the clouds roll in behind the light every time. But as you do not, cannot comprehend. Uh, oh, but I am grateful to you. You are so clever, woman. Madam, he said this very solemnly. If I ever, Abraham von Helsing, can do anything for you or yours, I trust you will let me know. It will be pleasure and delight if I may serve you as a friend. <laughs> as a friend, but all I have ever learned, all I can ever do, shall be for you and those you love. There's darkness in life, and there are lights. And you are one of the lights. You will have a happy life and a good life. And your husband will be blessed in you. But, Doctor, you praise me too much, and... And you do not know me. Not know you. I who am old, who have studied all my life, men and women. I, who have made my speciality the brain and all that belongs to him and all that follow from him. I have read your diary that you have so goodly written for me and which breathes out truth in every line. I, who have read your sweet, so sweet letters to Paul Lucy of your marriage and your trust, not know you. Oh, Madame Mina, good women tell all their lives, and by day and by hour and by minute, such things that angels can read. And we men who wish to know have in us something of angels' eyes. Your husband is noble nature, and you are noble too, for you trust, and trust cannot be where there is mean nature. And your husband, tell me of him, is he quite well? Is all that fever gone? Is he strong and hearty? I saw here an opening to ask him about Jonathan, so I said, He was almost recovered, but he has been greatly upset by Mr. Hawking's death. He interrupted me. Oh, yes, I, I know, I know, I have read your last two letters. I went on. I suppose this upset him, for when we were in town on Thursday last, he had sort of a shock. A shock? 
And after the brain fever so soon? That was not good. What kind of a shock was it? He thought he saw someone who recalled something terrible, something which led to his brain fever. And here the whole thing seemed to overwhelm me in a rush. The pity for Jonathan, the horror which he had experienced, the whole fearful mystery of his diary, the fear that has been brooding over me ever since, all came in a tumult. I suppose I was hysterical, for I threw myself on my knees and held up my hands to him and implored him to make my husband well again. He took my hands and raised me up, made me sit on the sofa and sat by me. He held my hands in his and said to me with, oh, such infinite sweetness. My life is a barren and lonely one, and so full of work that I have not had much time for friendships. But since I have been summoned here by my friend John Seward, I have known so many good people and have seen nobility that I fear more than ever. And it has grown with my advancing years, the loneliness of my life. Believe me, then, that I come here full of respect for you and you have given me hope. Hope not in what I am seeking of, but that there are good women still out left to make life happy. Good women whose lives and whose truths make good lessons for the children that are to be. I am glad. Glad that I may be here or be of some use to you. For if your husband suffer, he suffer within the range of my study and experience. I promise you that I will gladly do all for him that I can. All to make his life strong and manly and your life a happy one. Now you must eat. You are overwrought and perhaps over-anxious. Husband Jonathan would not like to see you so pale, and what he like not where he love is not for his good. Therefore, for his sake, you must eat and smile. You have told me all about Lucy, and so now we shall not speak of it, lest it distress. I shall stay in Exeter tonight, for I want to think much over what you have told me. And when I have thought, I will ask you questions, if I may. And then, too, you will tell me of husband Jonathan's troubles, so far as you can, but not yet. You must eat now. Afterwards, afterwards you shall tell me. After lunch, we went back to the drawing room, and he said to me, And now, tell me all about him. When it came to speaking to this great learned man, I began to fear that he would think me a weak fool and Jonathan a madman. That journal is all so strange, and I hesitated to go on. But he was so sweet and kind, and had promised to help. I trusted him, so I said, Dr. Van Helsing, I have... What I have to tell you is so queer that you must not laugh at me, or my, my husband. I have been since yesterday in a sort of fever of doubt. You must be kind to me and not think me foolish that I have even half believed some very strange things. He reassured me by his manner, as well as his words, when he said, Oh... My dear, if you only know how strange is the matter regarding which I am here, it is you who would laugh. I have learned not to think little of anyone's belief, no matter how strange it be. I have tried to keep an open mind, and it is not the ordinary things of life that close the closet. But the strange things, the extraordinary things, the things that make one doubt if they be mad or sane. Thank you. Thank you a thousand times. You have taken a weight off my mind. If you will let me, I shall give you a paper to read. It is long, but I have typewritten it out. It will tell you of my trouble and Jonathan's. It is the copy of his journal when abroad, and all that happened. 
I dare not say anything of it. You will read for yourself and judge. And then when I see you, perhaps you will be very kind and tell me what you think. I promise, he said. I gave him the papers. I shall in the morning, so soon as I can, come to see you and your husband, if I may. Jonathan will be here at half past eleven, and you must come to lunch with us and see him then. You could catch the quick train, 3.34 train, uh, which will leave you at Paddington before eight. He was surprised at my knowledge of the trains offhand, but he does not know that I have made up all the trains to and from Exeter, so that I may help Jonathan in case he is in a hurry. He took his papers with him and went away. I sit here thinking, thinking I don't know what. Letter. By hand, von Helsing to Mrs. Harker. 25th September, 6 o'clock. Dear Madam Mina, I have read your husband's so wonderful diary. I may sleep without doubt. Strange and terrible as it is, it is true. I will pledge my life on it. It may be worse for others, but for him and you there is no dread. He is on a noble fellow. He will let me tell you from experience of men that one who would do as he did in going down that wall and to that room, I and going the second time, is not one to be injured in permanence by a shock. His brain and his heart are all right. This I swear before I have ever seen him. So be at rest. I shall have much to ask you and of him and of other things. I am blessed that today I come to see you. For I have learned all at once so much that again I am dazzled. Dazzled more than ever. And I must think. Yours, the most faithful, Abraham von Helsing. Letter. Mrs. Harker to Van Helsing. 25th September. 6.30 p.m. My dear Dr. Van Helsing, a thousand thanks for your letter, which has taken a great weight off my mind. And yet, if it be true, what terrible things there are in the world, and what an awful thing if that man, that monster, be really in London. I fear to think. I have this moment, whilst writing, had a wire from Jonathan, saying that he leaves by the 6.25 tonight from Launceston, and will be here at 10.18, so that I shall have no fear tonight. Will you, therefore, instead of lunching with us, please come to breakfast at 8 o'clock, if this be not too early for you. You can get away, if you are in a hurry, by the 10.30 train, which will bring you to Paddington by 10.35. Do not answer this, as I shall take it that if I do not hear from you, you will come to breakfast. Believe me, your faithful and grateful friend, Mina Harker. Jonathan Harker's Journal, 26th September. I thought never to write in this diary again, but the time has come. When I got home last night, Mina had supper already, and when we had supped, she told me of Van Helsing's visit, and of her having given him the two diaries copied out, and how anxious she was, been about me. She showed me in the doctor's letter that all I wrote down was true. It seems to have made a new man of me, it was the doubt as to the reality of the whole thing that knocked me over. I felt impotent, and in that dark and distrustful. But now, I know. I am not afraid, even of the Count. He has succeeded, after all then, in his design in getting to London. And it was he I saw. He was got younger. And how? But Helsing is the man to unmask him and to hunt him out, if he is anything like what Mina says. We sat late and talked it all over. 
Mina is dressing and I shall call at the hotel in a few minutes and bring him over. He was, I think, surprised to see me. When I came into the room where he was and introduced myself, he took me by the shoulder and turned my face around to the light and said after a sharp scrutiny, But Madame Mina told me you were ill, that you had a shock. It was funny to hear my wife called Madame Mina by this kindly, strong-faced old man. I smiled and said, I was ill. I have had a shock, but you have cured me already. And how? By a letter to Mina last night. I was in doubt, and when everything took a hue of unreality, I did not know what to trust, even the evidence of my own senses. Not knowing what to trust, I did not know what to do, and so had only to keep on working what had hitherto been the groove of my life. The groove ceased to avail me, and I mistrusted everything, even myself. Doctor, you don't know what it is to doubt everything, even yourself. No, no, you don't. You couldn't, with eyebrows like yours. He seemed pleased and laughed as he said, So, your physiognomist, I learn more here over this hour. I am wish you so much pleasure coming to you and with breakfast. And, uh, oh, sir, you will pardon praise from an old man, but you are blessed in your wife. I would listen to him go on praising Mina for a day, so I simply nodded and stood silent. She is one of God's women, fashioned by his own hand to show us men and the other women that there is a heaven where we can enter, and that its light can be here on earth. So true, so sweet, so noble... So little egoist, and that let me tell you as much in this age. So skeptical and selfish. You, sir, I have read all the papers and letters to Paul, Miss Lucy, and some of them speak of you. So I know you have sent some days from the knowing of others, but I have seen your true self since last night. You will give me your hand, will you not? And let us be friends for all our lives. We shook, and he was so in earnest and so kind that it made me quite choky. And now, he said, may I ask you for some more help? I have great tasks to do, and at the beginning it is to know. You can help me here. Can you tell me what went before you're going to Transylvania? Later I may ask more help, and of a different kind. But at first this will do. Look here. I said, does what you have to do concern the Count? It does, he said solemnly. Then I am with you, heart and soul. As you go by the 10.30 train, you will not have time to read them, but I shall get the bundle of papers. You can take them with you and read them in the train. After breakfast, I saw him to the station. When he had parting, he said, Perhaps you will come to town. I will send for you, and take Madame Mina too. We shall both come when you will, I said. I had got him the morning papers and the London papers of the previous night, and while we were talking at the carriage window, waiting for the train to start, he was turning them over. His eyes suddenly seemed to catch something in one of them. The Westminster Gazette. I knew it by the colour, and he grew quite white. He read something intently, groaning to himself. My God. My God. So soon. So soon. I do not think he remembered me at the moment. Just then the whistle blew, and the train moved off. This recalled him to himself, and he leaned out the window and waved his hand, calling out, 
love to my demeanor. I shall write so soon as I ever can. Dr. Seward's Diary. 26th September. Truly there is no such thing as finality. Not a week since I had said finis, and yet here I am starting fresh again, or rather going on with the same record. Until this afternoon I had no cause to think of what is done. Renfield had become, to all intents, as sane as he ever was. He was already well ahead of his fly business, and he had just started in the spider line also. So he had not been of any trouble to me. I had a letter from Arthur, written on Sunday, and from which I gather that he is bearing up wonderfully well. Quincy Morris is with him, and that is much for his help, for he is himself a bubbling well of good spirits. Quincy wrote me a line too, and from him I hear that Arthur is beginning to recover something of his old buoyancy. So as to them, all my mind is at rest. As for myself, I am... I was settling down into my work with the enthusiasm which I used to have for it, so that I may fairly have said that the wound which poor Lucy left on me was becoming cicatrized. Everything is, however, now reopened, and what is to be the end God only knows. I have an idea that Van Helsing thinks he knows too, but he will only let out enough at a time to wet curiosity. He went to Exeter yesterday and stayed there all night. Today he came back and almost bounded into the room at about half past five, thrust last night's Westminster Gazette into my hand. What do you think of that? He said as he stood back and folded his arms. I looked over the paper, for I really did not know what he meant. But he took it from me and pointed out the paragraph about the children being decoyed away to Hampstead. It did not convey much to me until I reached a passage where it described small puncture wounds on their throats. The idea struck me. I looked up. Well, he said. It is like poor Lucy's. And what do you make of it? Simply that there is some cause in common. Whatever it was that injured her has injured them. I did not quite understand his answer. That is true indirectly, but not directly. How do you mean, Professor? I asked. I was little inclined to take his seriousness lightly, for, after all, four days of rest and freedom from burning, harrowing anxiety does help to restore one's spirits. When I saw his face, it sobered me. Never, even in the midst of our despair about poor Lucy, had he looked more stern. Tell me, I said. I can hazard no opinion. I do not know what to think. I have had no data on which to found a conjecture. Do you mean to tell me? Cringer, that you have no suspicion as to what Paul Lucy died of, not after all that hints I have given, not only by events, but by me, <laughs> of nervous prostration following on a great loss or waste of blood. And how was the blood lost or waste? I shook my head. He stepped over and sat down beside me and went on. You're a clever man, friend John. You reasoned well, and your wit is boiled. You're too prejudiced. Do not let your eyes nor your ears hear. And that what you is outside your daily life is of no account to you. Do you not think that there are things which you cannot understand, and yet which are? That some people see things that others cannot? But there are things old and new which must not be contemplated by men's eyes because they know not. Or they think they know. Some things which other men have told them. 
Ah, this is a fault of our science that it wants to explain all, and that which I think themselves new, and which are yet to be old, but which pretend to be young. Like the fine ladies at the opera. I suppose now you do not believe in corporeal transference. No? Non materialism? No? Non astral bodies? No. Non the reading of thought? No? Non the hypnotism? Yes, I said. Caracott has proved that pretty well. He smiled and went on. Then you are satisfied as to it, yes? And of course, then, you understand how it acts and can follow the mind of the great Caracott. Alas, that he is no more. Into the very soil of the patient and the influence, no? Then, friend John, I am to take that you are simply accept the fact that we are satisfied to let from premise to conclusion we blank? No? Then tell me, for I am a student of the brain, how you can accept the hypnotism and reject the thought reading. Let me tell you, my friend, that there are things done today in electrical science that would have been deemed unholy by the very men who discovered electricity, who would themselves, not so long before, have been burned as wizards. They were always the mysteries in life. Why was it that Methuselah lived 900 years, and the old Pa, 169, and that is poor Lucy, with the four men's blood in her poor veins, could not live even one day, for, and had she lived one more day, we could have saved her. Do you know all the mysteries of the life and death? Do you know, altogether, the cooperative anatomy can say, wherefore the qualities of brutes are in some men and not in others? Can you tell me why, when other spiders die, small and soon, that one great spider lived for centuries in the tower of the old Spanish church and grew and grew till on descending he could drink the oil of all the church lamps? Can you tell me why, in the pampas, I and elsewhere, there are bats that come in the night, open the vein and the cattle and the horses and suck dry the veins? How in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang in the trees all day and those who have seen describe like giant nuts or pods and when the sailors sleep on the deck because it is hot they down on them and they then in the morning are found dead men white as even Miss Lucy was. Good God, Professor, I said starting up. Do you mean to tell me that Lucy was bitten by such a bat and that such a thing is here in London in the 19th century? He waved his hand for silence and went on. Can you tell me why the tortoise live more long than generations of men? Why the elephant goes on and on till he have seen dynasties? And why the parrot never die only of bite of cat or dog or under complaint? Can you tell me why men believe in all ages and places that there are some few who live all and always if they be permit? That there are men and women who cannot die? We all know, because science has vouched for the fact, that even have toads shut up in the rocks so for thousands of years, shut in one so small hole that only hold him since the youth of the world. Can you tell me how the Indian fakir can make himself to die and have be buried, and have graves sealed, the corn sowed on it, and the corn reaped, and be cut and sown and reaped and cut again, and the men come and take away the unbroken seal, and there lie the Indian fakir, not dead, that rise up and walk amongst them as before. Here I interrupted him. I was getting bewildered. He was so crowded on my mind, his list of nature's eccentricities and possible impossibilities, that my imagination was getting fried. I had a dim idea of what he was teaching me some lesson, as long ago as he used to do in a study in Amsterdam. But he used to tell me the thing, so I could have 
this object of thought in mind all the time. But now I was without his help. Yet I wanted to follow him, so I said, Professor, let me be your pet student again. Tell me the thesis so I may apply your knowledge as you go on. At present, I am going in my mind from point to point as a madman, and not a sane one follows an idea. I feel like a novice lumbering through a bog in a mist, jumping from one tussock to another, and in the mere blind effort to move on without knowing where I'm going. That is a good image, he said. Well, I shall tell you. My thesis is this. I want you to believe. To believe what? To believe in the things that you cannot. Let me illustrate. I heard once of an American who so defined faith. That faculty which enables us to believe things which we know to be untrue. For one, I follow that man. He meant that we shall have an open mind and not let a little bit of truth check the rush of a big truth. Like a small rock does a railway truck. We get the small truth first. Good, we keep him, we value him. But all the same, we must not let him sink himself all the truth in the universe. Then you want me not to let some previous conviction injure my receptivity of my mind with regard to some strange matter. Do I read your lesson right? Ah, you are my favorite pupil still. It is verse to teach you. Now that you are willing to understand, you have taken the first step to understand. You think then that those small holes in the children's throats were made by the same that made the hole in Lucy's? I suppose so. He stood up and said solemnly, Then you are wrong. Oh, would it were so, but alas, no. It is worse. Far, far worse. In God's name, Professor Van Helsing, what do you mean? I cried. He threw himself with a despairing gesture into a chair and placed his elbows on a table, covering his face with his hands as he spoke. They were made by Miss Lucy. We hope you are enjoying our retelling of Bram Stoker's Dracula. If you are enjoying our version of the story, we ask that you please subscribe, like, or follow our podcast so that you'll be notified as soon as the next episode drops. This is a labor of love, and if you're enjoying the story, we encourage you to support us through Acast Plus or tell your friends about us so that we can continue to share great stories. Thank you.